Hello, and welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. Alex Eastman. Alex is the Senior Medical Officer at the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Health Security. In this role, he is responsible for operational medicine across DHS, in addition to countering threats to the United States worldwide. On the operational front, Dr. Eastman is a task force officer with ICE Homeland Security Investigations and is assigned to the Special Response Team Program. Alex is also a Dallas Police Department Lieutenant, the Chief Medical Officer of the Dallas Police Department, and the Lead Medical Officer for the Dallas Police SWAT Team. He is actively involved in national planning for law enforcement through medical support through the Department of Justice's Officer Safety and Wellness Group, the Committee on Tactical Emergency Care, the Hartford Consensus Working Group, and serves as the medical advisor for the Major Cities Chiefs Association. Alex, welcome to the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Fred, thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you all. Alex, tell us a little bit about your current job duties with DHS. Yeah, so I am the Senior Medical Officer for Operations at the department, and that um, puts me working with all of our operational medicine programs across the DHS family. It is a fascinating job every day. Uh, On some days, I'm working with our nearly, you know, just over 4,000 EMTs and paramedics in all 50 states and, and, you know, 60 or so countries around the world. Some days I'm working with um, our border health program and and helping shape the way that we respond to the Southwest border. And on other days, I'm working with the incredible employees at DHS and in our operational components to, to anticipate, detect, um, and protect the United States against health security threats of all shapes and sizes. So uh, a fascinating um, job every day. Alex, uh, you've had an amazing career as a cop and a trauma surgeon, and that's kind of hard for an old cop and agent like myself to even compute. Uh, but how the heck did you get in this business? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's. Uh, I, I look back, um, and and at least I'm told that my uh, mom still regrets uh, the day in, in 1977. I was three years old and my uh, mom let me sit in the front seat of the rescue squad at uh, open house at, at, at BCC, Fred. Uh, and, and the rest is history, she says. Um, That's a place I know all too well, my friend. Indeed, indeed. And, and, and you know, I, for me, there were a number of people, particularly early in my career, that, that really um, watched me take a pretty atraditional career path, particularly for an academic trauma surgeon. And and many people told me there would have been no way to make these things fit together. But in actuality, that 
the the two parts of the career. It's really three. It's the intersection of 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 you know, trauma surgery and medicine with law enforcement and public health, and those three things come together in a pretty unique role um, that that actually works very well together. Alex, we've had Uvalde, Nashville, Louisville, and we have a tremendous amount of security practitioners, executive protection personnel, cops that listen to our podcast. What type of training do you recommend in order for practitioners to fulfill their duty of care for the people they protect? Yeah, a a two-part answer. Fred, and and I'm going to go sort of general to specific. I think the first thing that has to happen is too often, and and, and hospitals are particularly guilty of this, hospitals and healthcare organizations, we're so guilty of of training for a plan that's written or drilling for success instead of training like you're used to and I'm used to, which is training all the way to failure. Um, and, and training hard and training realistically. And so I think that that if you're an executive or a security professional or or a, a law enforcement officer that's or or a doctor whose whose job it is to prepare an organization for you know an active shooter event, a crisis that's going to occur, you've got to have hard, realistic training that pushes people outside their comfort zone because otherwise the first time they get outside that comfort zone uh, is going to be on on the at the time of a real event and that's just not a recipe for success the second part of that is in particular you know what 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 we aspire for is for the same level of care uh, that would be provided you know in any of our nation's you know highly functioning trauma centers We'd like that same level of care provided as close to the point care, to the point of wounding as possible, um, even, you know, um, under fire if 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 called for. And so, that training really requires um, a new paradigm for most people, which is really a hybrid of, uh, you know, what law enforcement agencies and the Department of Defense and our special operations units have done for years, which is, you know, has come to fruition in the in the Stop the Bleed program. I'm proud to have helped, you know, be a small part of, of putting that together. And, and, you know, DHS, an original plank holder in the Stop the Bleed program, we're proud to have contributed. Do you see a trend of security practitioners and cops becoming EMTs and paramedics? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's way more, way more overlap um, than than you know uh, there was a decade ago, Fred. But but what's interesting to me is not necessarily that that more cops are are getting certified as EMTs and paramedics, although that's happening. But if you you know, I remember sitting down at the first meeting of the Hartford Consensus and saying, you know, we have to do what we had done in the Dallas Police Department already, which was make hemorrhage control every bit of a core law enforcement skill as driving, de-escalation, criminal investigation, use of force, all of those things. Hemorrhage control had to be a core skill that, that cops felt comfortable with. And if you look now, as you as I go around the United States, one of the things I always notice is, you know, you'll see uh, 
on 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 almost every cop's Sam Brown now is a a commercial tourniquet somewhere on their kit, and it it, it you know in it, I mean in some ways it's disheartening that that's what the world's come to that we have to do that, but but in other ways it's incredibly satisfying to see how the law enforcement community has taken the the mantle of saving our own uh, and and turned it outwards to get outside law enforcement and help save people in communities you know, all around this nation. And we see it here, Alex, with uh, executive protection teams protecting CEOs uh, or high-profile individuals. Uh, Everyone has a trauma kit or a stop-the-bleed kit uh, and tourniquets and are carrying them in follow cars and so forth. And it's really almost been one of these inflection points that I think people get it. And do you think from just your observations, what is the biggest oversight or gap that you've witnessed in medical training for practitioners? Meaning the folks that are listening to this today, what should they go out and learn to do, Alex? Yeah, that, that's that's a great question, Fred. And I think, you know, for me, the gap it is almost that uh, people try to train law enforcement practitioners and security practitioners to do too much. And, and really, the, the things that save lives in the field are effective hemorrhage control. So if you see bleeding and you're able to stop it, uh, that, that's, that's a win all the way around. And then the second thing is not letting anything slow your patient or victim, depending on your perspective, uh, not letting a single thing slow that person's transport from wounding to uh, entrance into the trauma system, into a place where there's an operating room that can stop whatever bleeding you can't in the field. And, And that really takes some discipline by the physicians and medical staff and leaders in a system that are trying to train you know, cops and agents and 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 security providers to do this because the 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 in many ways I think the DOD has been such a great you know guide post for us and the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care has done a tremendous job of translating this into you know real lay people's language. But in a way, I think we're different than the DOD and that 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 our systems are different and it almost is trying to do too much. And so, you know, I use not to fall back on my mom again. She's um, I hope she doesn't listen to this. I'm about to give her age away, but she's nearly 80 and uh, she's nearly 80 and a retired Washington, D.C. labor attorney. And, you know, look, I think like if my mom, who is the far is is probably the last person I would want coming to my aid in a in a crisis situation, if we could devise a training program that not only makes her her you know, able to stop hemorrhage, but but empowers her to be comfortable, you know, as comfortable as possible doing so, then we're going to win this. And, and or at least we're going to make a dent. And, and I think that, you know, what that does, you know, the, the Stop the Bleed program has trained some incredible number for an organically designed program with no real budget support to speak of, you know, train I think they're up to three or three point something million Americans trained. But when you think about it, 
our initial goal was to train every American. And so while some of the, you know, my co-leaders in Stop the Bleed will, you know, pat themselves on the back and congratulate them, you know, I, I seem to be the one at times reminding them that while 3 million people trained is a big success, that means we only have about 297 million more to go uh, before we're, you know, we've got this problem, you know, licked. Well, on a practical sense, uh, Alex, uh, putting on uh, my old uh, cop hat for a minute, you're out in the field, you don't have a tourniquet. What's the single biggest thing you can do if you don't have the equipment with you that you should to stop the bleeding? Yeah, you know, this is goes back to like old fashioned uh, American Red Cross first aid. You know, the, the, the most important thing you can do is get some pressure onto that whatever is bleeding or pack the wound with anything you can find, a shirt, a bandage if you have it. But I mean, pressure is really the key. And the good thing about a commercially made tourniquet is it enables you to stop the bleeding with a device that's easy to use and, and requires really minimal training to be effective and is a durable solution as you move the victim from what, you know, the point of wounding to, you know, into your transportation mode and then into the hospital. But I, I think, you know, being able to, to apply pressure and stop the bleeding is important. But if you are in, in the business of doing this, you know, as your job, um, if you're, you know, in law enforcement, in security, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, I think, in 2023 incumbent upon you to have some hemorrhage control equipment on your kit somewhere or easily at hand. Uh, because that is really the standard at this point um, that that we should all you know ascribe to. Yeah, that's very prudent advice. So, if you're out there listening to this uh, podcast and you are that protection team or corporate security team, where do you begin, Alex? How would you counsel that unit that that maybe you have some folks that transitioned out of? the military, or perhaps they have a few years with law enforcement, how best should they get prepared for medical emergencies, either, let's say, at an estate, in the workplace, or on the fly, if you're traveling around the world? Yeah, great great question. So first of all, so every, um, every state has at least one level one trial center and, and, you know, if you add the level twos in there, there are a number of them uh, and many states have more than one. But each of these places has uh, some stop the bleed training going on um, that is mandatory to continue their trauma certification. So somewhere around you, you know, you should reach out to your local providers and and and, you know, get them get get them to help point you in the direction of some functional training. I, and if you can't find someone, then I'd hope uh, you'd reach out to me um, and I would be more than happy to help point you in the right direction. Um, and, and, and the second thing is that, you know, uh, you got to go, if you're, you know, in not in leadership in your organization, but, but you notice this gap. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to go seek out the leaders in our organization and say, hey, look, like we, we've got a lot of equipment and we've got a lot of training, but we're missing the boat on this one because it's pretty 
foundational. And it's important because not only are we going to, you know, make a dent in our community. And after we instituted a hemorrhage control program in the Dallas Police Department in the next, in the year after that, and this was a long time ago now, Fred, but a year after that, we saved 52 civilians in the first like 14 months. Wow. Um, afterwards. And, and, and so, and, and, you know, Tucson's numbers are even bigger. But, you know, if you do this, not only are your officers or agents going to be more safe themselves and, and be able to better protect each other, but they're also going to be better able to protect your community. Alex, from a modeling perspective, as you, I know you sat inside the Beltway and you've got a great grasp uh, as to what's taking place across uh, our great nation. Is there any country out there in the world that has a model that's better than ours? That's a tough one because because there's there's no country in the world that has uh, a problem the the magnitude of ours, particularly you know today as we look at the events in in Louisville um, as we're recording this just after that occurred. Um, so so hard to compare, but I, I would certainly say that the Israelis have done a tremendous job of turning ordinary citizens into everyday immediate responders. And, you know, we, we don't like the idea and the term bystander because really that doesn't describe adequately what, what we're shooting for here, which is to have, you know, every American be able to respond um, in a crisis and to execute whatever hemorrhage control measures need to be taken, uh, you know, immediately after an event has occurred. But I would say the Israelis have a really good model um, and there are some others that out there, uh, the, the Brits have engaged uh, to some degree in the stop the bleed, you know, type training for their citizenry. But again, I think, you know, we have to take a hard look in the mirror um, as Americans and say, you know, why do we have this problem at, you know, magnitudes greater than our civilized nation counterparts? Yeah, well said. Alex, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to say? No, I, I think, Fred, I think the one thing that I would do is to um, reiterate my offer to try to support anyone uh, that, that, that is coming up short uh, in their home location or institution. So if there's, you know, I, I am lucky that I uh, have the, what I think is really the best job in America and a supportive um, secretary and, and leadership structure that, that allows me to get out into communities across this nation and, and, and try to make them better and safer one at a time. So if I can be of any assistance, um, I, I'll, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to give out an email here or w what works, but, but please don't, don't hesitate to reach out uh, if I can help you. Sure. I'd love to have that email. Yeah, it is Alexander dot Eastman, E-A-S-T-M-A-N, at hq.dhs.gov. And please, if uh, I can help you, don't hesitate to reach out. Well, Alex, uh, I think I'm going to speak for a lot of people. I want to thank you for what you're doing to protect all of us here inside the United States. And um, Godspeed, my friend. Fred, thanks again, and it is an absolute pleasure to, to join y'all here at the Protective Intelligence Podcast, and I hope we'll, we'll do it again soon. Thank you. 
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.